Please join me for the prayer of illumination. Let us pray. Holy God, author of life, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we hear and understand what your word has to tell us today. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapters 12, verse 11. Hear these words. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The word of God for the people of God. Once upon a time is how all good stories start, and so we'll start our story there. Once upon a time, there was a woman. Uh, this woman was a devout Christian, and her name was Jane. Jane desired to connect with God, so she began thinking about ways to connect with God. She thought about her mother, a very godly person, who every morning woke up, got the dog's leash and put it by the bed, knelt down in prayer, rose from the prayer, read a few verses from her Bible, then got up and took the dog for a walk. Jane thought this would be a good practice, so she began by grabbing the dog's leash, kneeling in prayer, rising from the prayer, reading some of her Bible, and then taking the dog for a walk. Well, time goes on, as time is ought to do, and a few years later, Jane met a nice lad, and they settled down and started a family. As time became more and more hectic and challenging, Jane's morning discipline changed slightly. Every morning she woke up, got the dog's leash and put it by the bed, knelt down in prayer, rose from the prayer, and then got up and took the dog for a walk. Jane would still read the Bible, but it was mostly at night, and that was that. Time goes on, as time is ought to do, and Jane's youngest daughter, Alice, grew up into a smart, beautiful entrepreneur and moved to the city. Alice desired to connect with God like her mother had, who every morning woke up, got the dog's leash, put it by the bed, knelt down in prayer, rose from the prayer, and then got up and took the dog for a walk. So Alice practices discipline day in and day out, and time goes on as time is ought to do. A few years later, Alice met a nice lad, and they settled down and started a family. As time became more and more hectic and challenging, Alice's morning discipline changed slightly. Every morning she woke up, got the dog's leash, put it by the bed, knelt down in prayer, rose from the prayer, and then got uh, up and took the dog for a walk. Alice would still pray every morning, but eventually she didn't know the words. She didn't know what to say. She didn't know how to pray. So she would kneel down, not have any words, and then rise up. Her mother did it that way. Certainly over time, the words would come. Time goes on, as time is ought to do, and Alice's youngest daughter, Marie, grew into a smart, beautiful entrepreneur and moved to the city. Well, time and traditions are funny things. One day when she was practicing this daily ritual, her daughter, a smart, beautiful, young entrepreneurial type, saw her mother gathering the leash and kneeling down. And as she rose up, she asked, Mama, why do you kneel down before you pray? Before you go take the dog for a walk? She said, Marie looked at her daughter and said, well, I've always done it that way. My, my mother did it that way. Her mother did it that way. It's just what we do. Now, I'm sure no one here has ever fallen into the trap of just always doing it that way and doing what you've just always done. Uh, rituals without meaning or words we say just because we're supposed to. Certainly no one has ever had that experience. 
I know uh, I haven't at all, Uh, but spiritual practices and traditions are a part of who we are as Christians. They provide an opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of who God is, and they provide an opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of who we are ourselves. When our spiritual practices lose meaning, we are in danger of losing our understanding of both God and ourselves. So our scripture, scripture today comes from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now before we hear what this text has to say, it's best to know a little bit about it, right? The who, what, when, where, why, how, all those things, before we wrestle with this text and let it speak anew today. So Hebrews is part of the New Testament. That's that part uh, in the back of your Bible. And it was originally written in Greek, although we have the pleasure of reading it in English today. It was translated for us. It's debated uh, who wrote Hebrews exactly. Originally, and I'm talking back in like the 400s originally, uh, they thought it was Paul because it was typically bundled with Paul's other writings. But modern scholarship has really kind of foisted that idea and said it's probably not Paul because it looks nothing like his form, structure, uh, content. It's probably not Paul at all. So it's best to hold this letter as anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. Some people think it was Priscilla, a woman in the early church. Some people think it was other people. We don't know. Overall, it's just uh, we just have it today and it's in our scripture. Hebrews is a a very unique book in the Christian scriptures. It really takes on the form of a sermon more than anything else, and as such it should be heard and read that way. And our passage today is near the end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has 13 chapters, and we will do well to remember that the chapters and verses, nod your head, were added later. And so uh, the author is kind of ending their point. They're coming to this big conclusion, and they make a number of points. But one of the main points of the book of Hebrews seems to be that people are falling away from the faith. The people that received this sermon and letter form had been giving up going to church, had been giving up telling the stories of the clouds of witnesses. They had been giving up overall. And this letter arrived to encourage them in their faith journey. So today in 2019, I want us to hear these words fresh and think about how it can apply to our lives today. Jake will put it back up on the screen here. Hear these words. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When I think about our children, when I think about parenting, when I think about grandparenting, I think about this verse. I think about the way we raise a generation in faith, and I think about the way that we encourage young people to take their next step. Whether it's through something like confirmation or or going to youth group or dropping the kids off at VBS or Mad Camp or taking our kids or grandkids and dropping them off at Lakeview for the first time or encouraging them to sign up and go on UM Army, we are all about raising a generation in faith. But how can we be sure that we are doing it right? How can we be engaged in that in a meaningful way? Sometimes this faith thing and children thing is easy. It makes sense. And sometimes, no. (laughs) It is not easy. And it does not make sense. And it is very, very difficult. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it takes discipline. 
Raising a generation in faith takes discipline because it's often a reflection of our own spiritual journey. And if we are honest with ourselves, which is one of the hardest things to do, if we are honest with ourselves, we are rather uncomfortable about our own spirituality. I know this because I stand before you today as a professional Christian. That's right. I can go to school and you can become a professional Christian too. It's called seminary and you graduate and they say, good job, you're a professional Christian. This is what I do for a living is I get to be spiritual. And so why does my skin crawl when people ask me what I do for a living? I say, so what do you do for a living? And I go, oh, not this question again. Please, please no, right? And it's because talking about spirituality for us in America is very uncomfortable. There are a lot of things that are sort of taboo in our culture. It's the thing that adults do together. Uh, it's the thing about politics and money. And then it's spirituality and religion. Things you don't talk about at dinner parties, right? Things you kind of steer away from. You can talk about the weather all you want, but you start talking about God and beliefs and spirituality. And it was really challenging. And so oftentimes, if we are uncomfortable with our spirituality, that can bleed over into other aspects of our relationships. Our children become uncomfortable talking about spirituality. Our grandchildren become uncomfortable talking about spirituality. And so I think we have to get comfortable with our own spirituality in order to teach our children about their spirituality. That's our first step. And the way that we can do that, hopefully a couple pointers here, some ways to get comfortable talking about our spirituality is first to start small. You can't go whole hog on the whole thing. You're not going to say, all of a sudden, I'm going to be the most spiritual person in the world, and I'm going to do all the spiritual stuff. You will burn, uh, crash and burn so fast. It's not even funny. You just got to start small. So you know what? Okay, I'm just going to, yes, I'm a spiritual person. Good. You started small. Victory achieved. Well done. Uh, the second thing you can do is you can talk about your faith. And so when someone asks you a question, and they say, do you go to church? Here are the words you can use. Yes. You did it. You talked about your faith, right? When someone says, well, what church do you go to? You can say, uh, I go to Chapelwood. You did it. You talked about your faith, right? You began an authentic way of having a conversation about your faith. They say, oh, Chapelwood. And you go, United Methodist. Well, that's interesting. Methodists. What do Methodists believe? All of a sudden, the avenue for conversation about your faith is so much broader than it was. Because you were honest with yourself. You were able to have a little bit of conversation. And you were not afraid to talk about your faith in a way that was meaningful. The third way that you can uh, talk about your faith, the way that you can get more comfortable with language around your faith, even more fluent in the language of faith, is by joining and plugging into a grow group. Grow groups look different across the spectrum. We have grow groups that meet at 9.30 here between services. We have grow groups that meet on Thursday night at different people's houses. We got grow groups that meet uh, at local restaurants, you name it, right? Grow groups look different. But what grow groups allow for everyone in this room is an opportunity to engage other people who are in the similar age and stage or wrestling through a similar book of the Bible or questions. So you can sit down and look across the table and have good conversations. If you're a young parent, it looks like this. Saying like, man, I really struggle to have devotional time. Am I crazy? And they're going to say, I can't even get my kids to be quiet for five minutes. No, you're not crazy, right? That's, that's a, the value of a grow group. Or if you're a grandparent, it can look like this. You can say, man, the grandkids are coming in to visit, and I'm thinking about skipping church and taking them to the beach. What do you think? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? And the other grandparents can say, we've been there. We've been grandparents a little bit longer than you. That's a bad idea, and here's why. That's the value that the grow group adds to us in Christian community. It allows us to grow fluent 
in the faith and have conversations that we wouldn't be able to have elsewhere. It's a way that we can uh, get a little more comfortable with our spirituality. Uh, the last one that I'm going to offer, and probably my favorite, is that you can ask a pastor out to lunch. This is how, this is, I'm going to give you the tip on what to do. You call them and you say, hey, Pastor Peter, I want to talk about faith, and I'm willing to buy you lunch. Uh, he's going to say, uh, sign me up. When do you want to go? But what that does is when you have an open and honest conversation with your pastor about faith, it gives us the opportunity to help give some language and some experience around how best to articulate your faith. Because oftentimes we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do. We have a faith, we have a spirituality, but sometimes we lack the understanding or we lack the words or we lack the experience, and we need to talk it out. And uh, that's what Pastor Peter and I went to school for, to be able to talk out spirituality in a way that plays out in the community of God. And there are other ways to engage in spiritual practices and traditions in ways that are helpful and meaningful for young people. There's lots of ways. Um, oftentimes, you might find yourself, uh, st st excuse me, statistics show that there are as many grandparents raising young babies as there are traditional nuclear families and mom and dads today. It is so mixed, the parenting landscape is so diverse that you can't just say, oh, that's a typical family. No such thing anymore. It is so mixed. And so I want to give you some things, whether you are raising young children or whether you have grandchildren, uh, there are ways that you can invite them to participate with you in this thing that we call faith. The first thing that you can do with young ones as you're uh, kind of seeking to sort of raise them up in faith is to pray with them. And now you're going to say, well, preacher, I don't, I don't even pray in public. Like, you, we would gather, like, at Burger King, and you're like, will you pray? I'm going to say no, because <laughs> I don't know what to say. That's all right. I don't either. And so what you do is you get there with your little one, whether it's a niece, a nephew, uh, your son, your daughter, grandkid, whatever, and you just say, you want to pray before we go to bed? And they're going to say, no. And <laughs> you say, let's pray before bed, right? And they say, what do you want to pray about? And then that gives the kid a chance to say, well, I think we should pray about the grass. And you go, that's beautiful. The grass needs prayed for. Let's pray. And they're going to say, well, I want to pray for mommy and daddy. I want to pray for my teacher. And you just go with it. Whatever they want to pray for, that's what you pray. And it allows the child an opportunity to participate in a holy conversation with you and God. And you're just stewarding that moment and that opportunity. Nothing fancy, no script. You just ask them, what do you want to pray about? And you'd be surprised. They'll lead you. The second thing is uh, have them bring an offering to church. Now, I know it is not October, and so it's not stewardship time. So you're a little upset that I'm talking about money. I get it. Uh, but there are opportunities for grandkids, for nieces and nephews and little ones to engage in church in the offering time. Uh, my son used to have a big glass jar till he broke it, and uh, we'd put a bunch of money in it, and we'd pour some out, and we'd say, all right, this is for saving, this is for your skateboard, and this is for the church. And he'd always say, I don't want to give my money to the church. And what a fantastic opportunity for me to engage him in conversation around charity, around ministry, around what the church does with its money, and it, was, it only cost me a few pennies. A few pennies. And then he gets to bring it in a little Ziploc bag and he throws it in the offering plate, and that's that. Sometimes my kids don't even bring money because they didn't, you know, do chores or whatever to get their money. And so they want to put something in the offering plate, which is a beautiful opportunity for us to teach them is not about what you put in the plate. 
It's not about how much you give. It's not about that. It's about offering your full self to God. And so my kids will write out something on the cards and the pews. They'll just put their name on it. And it's a beautiful offering to say, I'm giving this to God. It's an opportunity to teach them to engage in conversation around a spiritual practice that helps shape and form who we are. And the third thing you can do with little ones of all ages, I think, is just bring them to church. When I was in high school, I spent probably every weekend over at Tim Recker's house, a good friend of mine, and we played everything from video games to Dungeons and Dragons to hanging up and, you know, talking about girls, <laughs> playing guitar, you name it. And we would stay up to all hours of the night. We'd be up to 4 or 5 a.m., but it was understood that Sunday was church. And I had to get my behind home because my behind needed to be in the pew on Sunday morning. It was what we did as a family. It was just part of our culture, part of our DNA. It was an assumption of being raised in that uh, home that we would go to church no matter what Saturday looked like. So I want to encourage you, if you got little ones, you got grandbabies. My nephew came to visit a while ago, and I said, Connor, you're coming to church with me. He's like, really? I'm on vacation. I said, man, you don't take a vacation from church. <laughs> I was like, so he stayed up till like two. I went in there the next day. I said, come on, man, time to get up. Let's go. And that's a part of it. That's a part of, of coming alongside children, young ones, and raising them as an expectation and bringing them to church, modeling it for them. Because if we don't lead them, who will? If we don't model it for them, who will? If we don't have those conversations with them, who will? Oftentimes, I think that we hope that our grandchildren, our own children, will sort of just get spiritual by osmosis, right? They sort of like, it'll rub off on them and maybe they'll just pick it up. But if it's not modeled in a powerful way, who else is gonna model it for them? It's our responsibility as we raise young ones up to model what it looks like to be faithful in a community. So now for the other half of the room, right? There's this whole part of the conversation that we've been having, and some of you aren't parents or have grown children, and you're thinking, I came here on the wrong Sunday. This has nothing to do with me. Uh, so I want to talk to those parents whose children are grown and gone. First, Good job. <laughs> like, you did it, right? You raised your kids up, you gave them roots and wings, and they're gone, and it's beautiful. And you're in a new season of life. Seriously, good job. And you've entered into a whole new space of parenting uh, that I'm going to call Parenting 2.0. My dad is in his uh, mid-60s. My grandmother, his mom, is still alive. She's in her late 80s, and she still tries to parent him. It is adorable to watch an 89-year-old woman try <laughs> and parent a 67-year-old man. It is just, uh, it's adorable. Uh, and that's because parenting never stops. It never stops. It is always a task before us. It just looks different based on what phase and stage of life you're in. Your relationship to your child has probably intrinsically changed over these years. You've given them roots and wings, as the old saying goes. And now you enter into parenting 2.0, where you have to change the way that you parent. Because you cannot continue to parent the uh, second half of your life like you did the first half of your life. Your relationship to your child is intrinsically different. I grew up in Indiana, and Indiana has something called snow 
I know it's hard to pronounce for you Texans, so I'll go slow. Uh, and there was a time in undergraduate when we had what's called a blizzard, which is a lot of snow. And uh, we had a good amount of feet of accumulation on the um, ground, and I was still driving to work. I worked at a church in the middle of a cornfield. That's all there is in Indiana. And so I got in my car, and I drove, and I totaled my car because it was a blizzard. And so we were lucky. I, I, I uh, made it out of there alive, and I got a nice insurance check, $7,000, to go buy a new car. And I was... 21 years old. This is opportunity, right? <laughs> this is ripe for opportunity. I can go buy whatever car I want. So I go shopping, right? My dad says, go buy a car with the insurance. When I said, great. And I find this beautiful steel gray 1987 CJ7 with black leather seats. It's perfect. CJ, that's a civilian Jeep, right before they turned to Wranglers for all you non-Jeep people out there. And it was gorgeous, right? The uh, rocker panels were in good condition. It had all the original um, odometer and everything on the inside. The dash was perfect, except for it had some rust in the back rear uh, wheel wells. And the shifter in that is all made of brass, and so it didn't really shift a whole lot. And it was almost a historical vehicle, which was really not a good purchase. (laughs) But I was 21, and I had $7,000 in my pocket, so I was going to buy this Jeep. So I got in the Jeep, I took it for a ride, and I took it on the block, and I said, man, I really, really want this Jeep. Um, And then I didn't buy it. And I went back home, and my dad says, so how'd it go? Did you get the Jeep? And I said, no, I didn't. And I'll never forget what he did. He just took his hand out and said, good job. That was a smart decision. I was 21 with seven grand, man. I was going to buy anything I wanted. But my dad trusted me to either fail, and he'd be there, or to make the right decision, and he'd be there. He was parenting different in the last half of his life than he did on the first half of his life. Because if you have a nine-year-old, you don't give him, you know, $70 and say, go buy whatever toys you want, <laughs> you know. But in that stage of life, my dad walked alongside me differently. You have to parent differently on the back half of your life than you do on the first half. And so now I want to talk to those of you who aren't parents. First, I hate to break it to you, But yes, you are. (laughs) You are a parent here in this space. By virtue of the baptismal covenant that we take together, by virtue of our membership vows, we are accountable to one another. We are all brothers and sisters, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandma and grandpas to each other. When we look around, we are responsible and accountable for every person in here and their spiritual growth and their spiritual well-being. We hold each other in community, and we are accountable to each other. At the last church I worked, I was on staff as a youth director uh, for about four years. There was a couple there who had had wanted uh, to have kids, and uh, through, you know, just how things got dealt, they couldn't. Uh, They were biologically unable to have kids, and they were wondering how they could best give back to the community and uh, plug in. And so they became confirmation teachers for a season, uh, and they loved it. And then they became conference teachers for the next season and did so again for 30 years. When I was there, they were trying to retire, and I said, you guys can't retire. (laughs) These are your babies. All these kids that you walk with for nine months through confirmation, they are your children. They are your babies. You can't just retire. And they said, we know. We were born for this. Like, it it is a part of who we are as the body of Christ, that we are all parenting grandparenting, niecing, nephewing, sistering, brothering together. 
It is who we are by nature of our connection with God. We are all in this together. It truly takes a village to raise a generation in faith, and we are all accountable to each other. So friends, our young ones do not come with instructions. They don't come with instructions on how to feed them, how to change them, how to discipline them, how to inspire them, how to coach them, how to get them on a good schedule, how to get them into the right extracurriculars. They don't have instructions. And they don't have spiritual instructions either. Oftentimes we hate to admit it, but we are often winging it, both as grandparents and parents. And so what might it look like if we were to just slow down a little bit if we stop to examine not only our beliefs and ourselves and come alongside our children as mentors and guides in this thing that we call faith together? What would it look like if we admitted that we didn't have all the answers? If we admitted our own struggles and grew together in faith? Because if we don't teach them, who will? And so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.